from my grandma's body. In the present, my grandma, who has turned 77 today and who has birthed seven children during her lifetime, talks about the diet that she will go on on Monday. She talks about her diet to me and to anyone who will listen. She calls her children, her church friends. She tells the man who has come to fix her Wi-Fi about this diet as if it is something that she has already achieved. I have heard this enemy of a word too many times to count today. The way that she says it, diet, with extra emphasis on the die, concerns me. In the present, my grandma, who has turned 77 today, has decided that since it is her birthday, she will eat as she pleases. This will be her last hurrah, she says, her last time eating like this before starting her very serious diet on Monday. When I dutifully bring her a second and third slice of cake, I hear whispers from her body, jumbled stories from the past. Her body tells me that it knows that I am a writer, that it knows that I will not forget their words, and that I will utilize their tales in some way. I listen as stealthily as I can, because my grandma is a God-fearing woman who doesn't believe in that hocus-pocus devil stuff. I fear being forcefully bathed in baptizing water and sleeping with Bibles underneath my pillow. So hiding beneath my notebook, listening, I record their stories. Stories from her mind that has witnessed all the joys and tragedies that come with life, and how, despite everything, it has still remained sound. 
stories from her breasts where babies have sipped and slept and grew, from her heart that has loved her family the most and a husband that left this world before her, stories from her hands that have both slapped against reluctant biscuit dough and against my rebellious brown bottom. When I look up, I see that she is studying me, not with suspicion, but rather with a small, intelligent smile. In the future, and on Monday, I will mix eight ounces of almond milk with two scoops of plant-based protein powder. This will be her breakfast and lunch, she says. She will drink plenty of water, she says. She will sleep in place of meals that she cannot eat. She does not say, but I already know. When I bring her this modest meal, the stories from her body and the various parts that it contains respond desperately to the sight of it as if it already senses the shift. Her body tells me that it has thought about this diet and that it has thought about dying. Her body tells me that it does not want to become a body that is temporary. I shut the words out, unable to listen anymore. Instead, I focus on my grandma and who she is and who she will become. For days, my grandma has talked about this diet and how she will lose all of the fat that her body holds and none of the things that she will gain. I want to be skinny, she says, naturally knowing my thoughts, peeping my questioning eyes as I watch her sip her shake. She pauses, clears her throat, almost coughing, but she steadies herself. I want to be well enough to travel again. I want to see my children. I want to see them in their own homes, and not just when they visit me in mine. When we hear this, her body and I, a silence grows in place of our selfishness. We had thought of her wealth of weight as something formidable, as something that was not easy to perish, and never as something that was holding her back. I listen for her approval of the health shake, and she ensures me that it is good. When she is done, I wash out the cup, and I put the almond milk where it can get the coldest. I place the plant-based protein powder where she can easily reach it. Back in the present, when crumbs of cake fall into my grandma's lap, I sweep them away with my hand. And while I do this, I am struck with visions of the past. I see a younger me, a child sleeping against the thighs of my grandma, feeling the flicks of the church fan against my face in defense from the Mississippi heat. In the background, my mama says that I am too big to lay in her mother's lap. And my grandma tells her to leave me alone, that I am her big girl, and that I can lay in her lap if I want to. In the background, the choir sings about how this world is not our true home, how this body is only temporary, and that there will be days that go beyond this earth and the great blue sky. As my grandma rocks me to sleep, I dream about slapping my hands against stubborn biscuit dough, feeding my grandma as she has done for me countless times. I dream about gifting my grandma with a big, beautiful body, one that will last forever. Thank you.
That was Anna Teixeira with Freedom Hunter. In this newer South, while wearing a silky dress and afro, a white man tells me that I remind him of the old South. Mississippi, Spring 2022. One, protest in this dress. The silky dress tag tells me that I can work in this dress, feast 
in this dress. Dance, party, protest in this dress. But what if I am a black woman who wishes to exist as I am, where I am, without expectations of doing or knowing more? 2. The old South in this newer South that still holds on to its old. While my iced caramel macchiato is being made, a much older white man stands next to me in the coffee shop line and gets to talking to me, gets to say, You remind me so much of the old South. A cumulus cloud of black cotton hair halos over my head. A single severe curl of afro-textured hair contains the very same structure as DNA, galaxies, and tornadoes. My deep, darkened strands streak to a midnight lightning blue and shifted light, strike out and up in its height as their claim to heaven, to God, because maybe he can help me here? The silky caviar dress is a long and thin and crisp kind of cotton that sweepingly ruffles at the bottom and covers the majority of me except for some cleavage. Old South? Like slavery? I mumble a thank you, apologize to the much older white man's tight-lipped wife with my eyes as she sets her own eyes against me, eyes that are made to make me feel guilty for her husband's words, for the ways he continues to try to get closer to me. I blink to check where I am in time, present, not past, because these feelings of guilt and words of old South don't belong and blend with luxuries like macchiato drinks and silky dresses. 3. Black woman caught between a three-way of white approval, white fetishizing, and white contempt. The young white girl baristas tell me how pretty I am, and now I am caught between a three-way of white approval, white fetishizing, and white contempt. I don't know whether to run or stay or protest in this dress. I decidedly know that I don't want to protest in this dress, and wonder if it's ever possible for a black woman to just exist without there always being something more to make herself aware of. For a black woman, she must carefully plot over not only what she plans to wear, but how what she wears falls on her body. She must fret over how her hair bows or uproars. It is a dangerous thing to present herself in public without knowing how much of the same kind of sameness exists in a town, how progressive it may or may not be. It is fatal to not take into account that whether her curls courteously curtsy, her kinks jump and jack, that she would still be too much for either. 4. White men in big white pickup trucks and the spring almost summer sun. I cross the street to my Camry and white men in a big white pickup truck pull up next to me and yell, You look good, ma'am. This becomes the second thank you that I give to white men because I don't want to protest in this dress. To any white man or white men, in their old South, or this newer South. How a white man is a white man no matter what time or town he resides in. Inside of my car, the last remnants of sliver ice shells bob in the caramel macchiato with no cotton to save their melted sweats, or halos to prove that they are worthy of their heavens, or melanin to absorb the spring almost summer sun's rays. 5. How a black woman cares for herself the most in this old South. I blink to check where I am in time, present, not past, 
because these feelings of fear and big white pickup trucks don't belong and blend with luxuries like macchiato drinks and silky dresses and the freedom to publicly pursue and wear both. At home, away from coffee shops and streets, I try not to think about what if the time had been different, about what roles there'd be for the much older white man, the much older white man's tight-lipped wife, and the white men in the big white pickup trucks in that old South. In that old South, when a black woman's hair had to be packed and planted down, her only ticket into heaven becoming how well she makes it and herself behave. Behaving in a dress that is not all that nice, and making herself aware of the white husband's temptations and the white wife's jealousy and the white men's lust. Serving the coffee instead of being served in that old South. The sulky dress tag tells me that I can work in this dress, feast in this dress, dance, party, protest in this dress. That after all that fun to please give me it the care that it needs. I am a black woman who exists as I am, where I am, without expectations of doing or knowing more. The care that I need the most is this lie.
that was Anna Teixeira with Blue Heart on Your Sleeve. You are the stranger here. You are the unfamiliar bite of food. When I open the door for the FedEx worker, when I let you in, it's the way your eyes set themselves against me. Against me and not with me, not here. Do you and others like you know what your way of looking can do sometimes? How without words you whoop things out of us that we sometimes like to keep to ourselves? And instinctively I go, oh, and reach to the top of my head. These are just paper hair rollers. When you look at me so strangely still, still against me, and never with me now because this new bite of blackness for you is some kind of peculiarity that demands an explanation. In my wondering, I wonder if you are wondering why it is that my hair is plaited and not flowing down. In my wondering, I wonder if you are wondering why it is that the paper hair rollers, cut from the best boo store bags, wrap around my plaits like caramel cream hair bows, darkly splotch brown from my hair's oil. In my wondering, I wonder if you are wondering what they would look like if I took one of them down. Do they spring? Do they pop out like cinnamon rolls from out of a compressed can? So, my mom says, because you still can't quite figure it out. You know, like how we used to do back in the day, how we, because it's important to include you here, use Coca-Cola cans as curlers. And this is the spark. This is what turns your eyes from against me to with me. And you say, oh yeah, lowering your voice sneakily. My mama used to straighten my hair with an iron and an ironing board. As if that is some shameful kinship that we share, as if my paper hair rollers are part of this shame, and in this shame we are the same, equally strange. When you smile, when you talk, when you story, you do so now because we have explained ourselves to you, because now this new bite of blackness is familiar, and sweet-tasting, and soothing you back, and no longer strange, and sharp-tasting, and biting into you. And now I'm no longer wondering about your wondering. Now I'm only wondering about my own kind of wondering. And how is it that we always know so very many things about you and others like you, and yet you know so very little about us? When night comes, the paper hair rollers are no longer splotched, but fully steeped, turning them from caramel brown to wet wood brown. I keep going back to those can curlers, Keep going back because it is the soft way that I am able to lay on my paper rollers and me thinking about how your can curlers must have been cold and hard and cracking in the silent nights of your summer evenings, disrupting your rest. Keep going back because paper covers rock. Keep going back because paper always beats rock.
That was Anna Teixeira with Bees and Things. We deserve more black stories with happy endings. Slavery was legally abolished in 1865. The segregation of blacks and whites was made illegal in 1954. I have relatives who have had parents, grandparents, and great-grandparents that were no stranger to those times. These relatives are alive and well today. Like me, they are Mississippians. Lately, I've been thinking a lot about how close I am to that time of segregation, to slavery. How close I am to that time particularly because I am a Mississippian, and I know all too well how stubborn the state is. How resistant it can be to adopt and enforce the laws needed to create a better, fuller, and more whole way of living for those who are outside of whiteness. I have been thinking about this a lot lately, because as a writer, and as an idealistic person in general, I crave to write the happy endings for black characters in black settings in America, even though I am so close to those times. I am an infant, existing in the aftermath of America's atrocities. I am new to this. I am the stranger. I am the test with no study guide, hoping that all goes well. I crave the happy ending, though I still have relatives who teach and who have taught me the importance of never fully trusting a white person lest they betray you. They are snakes, they are devils, they say with good intentions, as they recount past experiences at the hands of hate. I crave the happy ending, though I am still self-conscious of being the only black person in an ultra-white setting, in restaurants, in stores, at school. I crave it, though the presence of black lives is still thought of as problematic by those who find it so easy to take our lives. They are taken by people who shout, Make America Great Again, by people who burn and discard anything designed to challenge their way of thinking, by people who support idiotic leaders in order to hold on to their need for power and control. I crave it, though the idea of freedom and togetherness and acceptance in America is still so very new. The years that separate me from my ancestors who experienced slavery, segregation, and the worst period of American history are so small, so short, that its proximity horrifies me. Did they ever dream of a happy ending? Was there ever any time to do so? Yes, I want to write the happy endings despite all of the obstacles, and I am aware that happy endings for black people exist, but in many ways they are simply conditional. Conditional until we are pulled over by the wrong kind of cop. Conditional until we walk into the wrong kind of restaurant. Conditional until happy endings that we have worked our ass off to obtain are challenged by the despicable thoughts of others. That house is too nice for a... I should call the cops, or there's no way this black woman could be a doctor. Our happy endings are conditional until we say one wrong word or do one wrong thing that could be deemed as rebellious or anti-American. I want to write the happy black endings that exist fully without tragedy, happy endings like the countless books that I have read by white authors featuring white characters, but I want them to be written because they exist outside of fantasy. I want them to exist because they reflect reality. 
I am asking. I am wondering. I am hoping for a day when that happy ending will be. When will it be accepted with full trust and not thrust away like something alien, like some sinister distraction created to make us believe in a false testimony that will equate to our inevitable end? An inevitable end that occurred because we trusted that happiness too much instead of conditionally like we've all been taught to. In my research, I am attempting to approach blackness as if I have not lived a fully black life in Mississippi. I am learning how to do this at the hands of my treasured teachers, Zora Neale Hurston, Anne Moody, W.E.B. Du Bois, Lawrence Otis Graham, and Michelle Wallace. There are many other teachers on my list, and Richard Wright is my latest one. Nada's son was a story that I was slow to accept. It took me four weeks to finish, twice as long as I anticipated, and that is because its end was already secured after the first few pages. I was not ready to go on and confirm what I already knew, that this black man would die, that this story would not be one that ended happily. Richard Wright's Native Son is a novel set during 1930s Chicago. Its main protagonist is Bigger Thomas, a young African-American man who receives the job of working for a very wealthy and prominent white family as a chauffeur. Yes, there is violence, and yes, there is death, but at its heart, it is a story about what happens to the dreamer and the dream when it becomes distorted by reality and seized by madness. Richard Wright's Bigger Thomas represented everything that my other teachers had warned me, either directly or indirectly, about. He was dark, wildly masculine, angry, reckless, and too smart for his black and bleak circumstances. Not only was I reluctant, but I was also angry with Bigger Thomas, angry for her stupid crimes, angry because I knew there would be no surprise ending, no deus ex machina to save the day. There is something about books like this that get under my skin, that make me mumble words that are not of my character with each passing page and escalating conflict. If only he had learned to smother his frustrations, I think. If only he had learned to be an unhappy black man in happy white surroundings. I wanted to distance myself from Bigger Thomas because he was an irrevocable black fuck-up who was beyond saving. But I knew that I needed to embrace his story for research, to learn, to help. By the end of the novel, I was left with emptiness and tears. This fictional black man had died, and non-fictional black men, women, and children were dying unnatural deaths in a non-fictional American world. There seemed to be no escape, acceptance, or reprieve for blackness, not in fictional settings, and especially not in non-fictional settings. Bigger Thomas was not a hero. He was not an admirable or a good man, and even knowing how it would end, and even learning who Bigger Thomas was, there were small parts of me that rooted for him. In my research, I am learning that blackness often consists of encouraging it and its need to thrive under almost any circumstance. It is accepting every character, the hero and the villain, simply because it contributes to the pool of our suppressed population. I am learning that blackness is love. It is the continued cheering of all our champions, chosen ones, monsters, and meddlers, because in doing so, 
we ensure our existence, as opposed to the much more frightening option, our nothingness. In the midst of our love for one another, there can also exist pain. Without escape, that pain only grows, becoming something bitter that takes away our breaths and obliterates whatever peace that we have entirely. Escape is what we black people dream of. Escape is what I often cling to when I read fictional works or watch fantastical movies. Escape is what made Jordan Peele's movie Get Out so delightfully entertaining. But even Peele knew that in some way, the ending that he had provided, the one that would go on to make it to the big screen, would be questionable. A man who is black wins. He burns down a home that is not his. He survives a setting that has been put into place to ensure his failure. He kills more than one of the characters who, at every step, have tried to physically and mentally invade him like some unwelcome explorer. A black man wins through all of this. Absurd. In response to that absurdity, an alternate ending was issued. It is an alternate ending that reflects the true reality of blackness in America when forced to survive and defend its basic right to live. Of course, we lose. In my research, I am learning that the way to survive blackness is to distance yourself from all characteristics that are deemed too black for their own good. If I want to live, I must remove myself from skin that is too dark, from hair that is too nappy. If I want to live, I must eliminate and shun all traces of my unknown, untraceable African origins. In my research, I am learning that it is best to do all of these survival tactics and more, but it is often not a guarantee of a happy ending to come. I am discovering that I can read all of the books, obtain all of the degrees, and speak and act in the most pleasant professional way but there will still be a probability of bullets finding their way into my body, obliterating the very last of my blackness like something that I could not see, some bit of blackness that I had forgotten or overlooked, and like a favor is wiped away by my white neighbor. I am not white, no matter how close I am able to obtain its aesthetic and culture. I feel like I am asking for impossible things for this time that I live in. I am too close to the time of segregation, too close to the time of slavery, too close to an era where hate for the other still exists. But I ask these things in order to remember and keep in my heart what I can do and what can be done to make the happy black endings an unconditional reality. Inside, the emptiness that I was left with after reading Native Son had shifted. I am a happy, bubbly, too damn idolistic for my own good black girl. I cannot deny it, and it is often hard for me to stay upset. Like Bigger Thomas, there is some subconscious understanding of myself, an ending that I can clearly see. As hope begins to thrive again, I decide that I will write the happy black endings, despite what reality says. I have made up my mind that if I am going to die anyway, by natural causes or otherwise— I will create what I truly want to. I decide that I will offer no alternate, more plausible ending for myself or my audience. This idealistic and happy ending of mine won't exist for my reality, possibly, for my time, possibly, but it will exist for my children and my children's children. When I am old and my life is nearly at an end, they will ask me how I knew to dream for more, 
how I dared to write the worlds that demanded the best from humanity, despite all the opposing evidence that it would not come into fruition. In response, I will say that I was psychic. I will say that I saw the future, and it was bigger. was Anna Teixeira with The Light in You. And I guess it's time for a little mise. On the menu today is a snack size interview with our featured musician, Anna Teixeira, multi-instrumentalist, singer-songwriter, Madeiran-Canadian-born Anna Teixeira, they, them, is now based in Lisboa, Portugal. Self-taught later in life, their styles are a mixture of genres ranging from indie folk to pop rock roots and Americana. Heavily influenced by their upbringing of Madeiran Portuguese music, food, and culture, largely from their closely knit relationship to their grandparents, their songs tell personal and familial stories of love and loss by way of migration and assimilation. Touring and performing solo and in various bands since 2001, Anna's songs also tell tales of living life on the road as a touring musician for the better half of 22 years. 
For future musical releases and show dates, you can find information at facebook.com slash Ana Teixeira Music. That's A-W-N-A-T-E-I-X-E-I-R-A Music. Or at instagram.com slash Ana Teixeira. Again, that's A-W-N-A-T-E-I-X-E-I-R-A. And Anna was kind enough to answer a few questions for the Violet Hour. 1. What is your earliest memory of a horse? I grew up in a city, so sadly never around horses. I remember one time when we were visiting somewhere in rural Ontario... I was maybe six. My parents got my older sister a horse ride. Since I was too little, I was always the smallest in my age group, I was just watching from outside the fence. Well, the horse took off with her on it and they couldn't catch the horse for a while, and I remember my sister screaming and it being really scary. My father, who has a horrible temper and was reasonably frightened by the whole thing, lost it on the handlers. I absolutely love horses and will muck their stalls, feed and water them, and brush their coats but I prefer to not ride, my friends. 2. If you were a tree, what kind would you be and why? I think I would be a Madeiran laurel tree. They exist only in the Fanal Forest on Madeira Island, where my family is from. The Fanal Forest on Madeira is one of the last remaining trees of the ancient laurel forest of its kind in that part of the world. They are thousands of years old. It is one of the most magical places I have ever seen. On the top of this really small island that is a few hundred miles west of Morocco. 3. What is your songwriting process and creative practice like? How many instruments do you play and what is your favorite? If you had to pick three of your songs and describe them as smells, what songs and scents would you choose? My creative process is a lot of different things. I feel like I am always creative even when I am not actively making something other people can see or hear. Songs and stories feel like they are always quietly brewing inside of me. I absorb the world around me in ways that fill me up, from even the little things, like I am collecting specimens of melodies, stories or scenes that come to me and move me. Sometimes I write them down, like lines, lyrics, or poems, or I photograph and record them. I have hundreds of song and lyric files on my phone and computer. So every once in a while, I go back through them and find things I hear in a different way, or put two or three different things together. That is a wonderful feeling when that happens. I could have song bits I wrote that I have listened back to many times over many years, and one day something clicks and they have found their way into the world. I will also sit down on occasion with an instrument, and a whole song from beginning to end will come out of me in one sitting. That feels pretty magical, and beyond my doing, really. It can feel wild and unpredictable. I have on occasion given myself different strategies when I'm feeling stumped like googling a topic and writing words about the topic and then putting them to music, or make up a song title and write a song based on its title. I think it's good to have different methods you can use when you want to push yourself. As far as instruments, I can play a few different ones. I use them mostly as songwriting tools, and some of them I'm decent at accompanying others on. I have played different ones better at different times, depending on what I was doing or who I was playing with at the time. I've played acoustic guitar, electric guitar, banjo, ukulele, bass guitar, washtub bass, accordion, harmonica, washboard, keys, and percussion all on stage before. I just love messing around with whatever I can get my hands on, on and off stage. I love the trumpet and baritone horn. Honestly, I would love to be a drummer or proficient on piano one day. But my favorite instrument has got to be the accordion. 
It is also the hardest one for me to play. It haunts me, really. I love it, and it is my biggest challenge. To describe three of my songs as smells, I would choose Blooming Bounty, and for that one I would describe it as the smell of wildflowers and summer grass in the hot sun. Wild One, I would describe it as the smell of a small creek in a pine forest. Sailor's Dream, I would describe as the yummy smell of your sweetheart's skin in sunscreen and salt air. Four, what are your five favorite words associated with beetle? Hmm, with beetle? Alexander, matchbox, nanny, happy, noises. My favorite song as a young kid was Alexander Beetle by Melanie. With yellow? Mustard, flowers, summer, bright, soft. With ghost? Cute, special, love, warm, exhilarating. Five, please describe your current obsessions as if they were messages on postcards. At this very moment, I only have one obsession. To whom it may concern. I see so many fluffy, tiny dogs with big ears, and I fear I cannot spend another day without having a dear, dear friend as such. I spend my days wandering around in my travels, dreaming of myself and this little friend having various adventures together riding on a moped, them sitting on my accordion while I play, adventuring beaches and lookout points near the sea. If you don't hear back from me again for a while, please just imagine me and a little friend out in the world living our truths and eating so many summer treats. I hope your spirit feels free and at ease. With love, until next time, Anna. Bonus, if you were a stuffed animal, what would you be? Maybe I would like to be a giant manta ray, very large, so I can be someone's giant, soft, steady hug. Well, thank you so much, Anna, for sharing your beautiful music and thoughts with the Violet Hour. Again, you can find out more about Anna Teixeira at facebook.com slash Anna Teixeira music or at instagram.com slash Anna Teixeira. And you can buy their music on Bandcamp at anateixeira.bandcamp.com. Another turn 
That was Anna Teixeira with A Sailor's Dream. Mousie, it's me, Mr. Bear. Oh, hey, Mr. Bear, so nice to see you. Come on in. Oh, it's good to see you, too. It's been a while. Yeah, I know. Uh, I can't believe... Where is the summer gone? Um, I can't believe we're already at, you know, the end, the end of summer. I mean, I know technically fall doesn't start till, you know, later in September, but, um... Oh, we all, we all know that when you, when you see the end of August go, that's, that's the end of summer. Oh, that mean true, except uh, there's like a heat wave coming this weekend uh, into next week. Oh, yeah, I mean, you know, but, but psychologically, it's the end of summer, Mr. Bear. Give me that. Ah, uh, yeah, I, I give you that, Miss Mousy. Anyway, I'm just loving the work of Exodus Octavia Brownlow um, and Anna Teixeira's music. Uh, what a gorgeous show. And uh, it's inspired me to make an elixir. Ooh, uh, what's in your elixir, Miss Mousy? Well, um, I've got a tincture of Valencia orange peels that I've mixed with a rose-infused honey. And it is just divine, Mr. Bear. I have to say, it's really, really good. Oh, that sounds amazing. Can I have some? Of course you can. I'm pouring you some right now. Um, I love to I love to drink it out of these little tiny cordial glasses. You know, they're just so pretty and fancy and special. Um, and yeah, and just, you know, it's nice to drink out of something beautiful. Because um, it just makes you appreciate it more, um, I think. Uh, anyway, um, I call this liquid sunshine. Did I say that already? Uh, I don't know if you said that already or not, Miss Mousy, but liquid sunshine, uh, that sounds great to me. Yeah, and, uh, I'm gonna tell you how to make it, Mr. Bear. Oh, good. Uh, I know, you know, I mean, Miss Mousy, I like to just come here and, you know, have the things already made for me, um, but, uh, it's good, I know it's good to learn how to make these things, too. Of course, Mr. Bear. I mean, I'm happy to make it for you anytime, but it's good to, you know, it's good to know how to make things for yourself. Um, anyway, uh, this is the, you just take peels from Valencia oranges, and I, I love Valencia oranges because, I mean, the peel is always, orange peel is going to, you know, be bitter, but there's also um, such a sweetness with Valencia oranges. They're so sweet and juicy, and even in the peels it comes through. It's really bright and juicy, and oh, I just love it. Anyway, you just, you know, you, you take a bunch of peels and chop them up and put them in a jar, pour vodka over it and cover it and leave that for like a month, you know, and you just shake it every day or every few days and then strain it out at the end of end of a month or so. I mean, you can leave it longer too. That's fine. And um, rose infused honey. We've talked about infused honeys a lot. Um, you just put a bunch of roses in a jar. I mean, not, you know, not the kind that you like go to the grocery store or, you know, most florist shops because they use lots of chemicals. But as long as you have a pesticide-free rose, um, then then you can use, uh, you know, you can work with any of those roses. Um, and so you just put the, the rose petals in a jar and cover it with honey. And same thing, you leave it for a month or so and, and then uh, strain it out. 
and you can eat those honeyed rose petals. Oh my gosh, they're so good. Um, you can bake with them or just eat them or, you know, put them in your oatmeal or yogurt. All out? You're making me hungry, Miss Mousy. That sounds delicious. It is delicious, Mr. Bear. Um, and the rose-infused honey is so delicious. And you mix that with the with the Valencia orange peel tincture, and you have an elixir. And you can just bottle it up. And like I said, I call it liquid sunshine. Because, I mean, oranges and roses and honey, I, I just brings back that, just brings back the light when you need it. Um... And you can, uh, you know, then you can can drink it out of your little tiny glasses in the winter and, and remember summer. Um, you know, it's time time in a bottle, Mr. Bear. That sounds delightful, Miss Mousy. Uh, you gonna hand over that little glass for me to try? Of course, Mr. Bear. Here you go. Uh, why don't we go sit outside and look at the moon, um, and have our and have our liquid sunshine. Oh, that's like being with the sun and the moon at the same time. That's pretty exciting. Uh, yeah, it, it is, Miss Mousy. I like that idea. And wow, this is delicious. Uh, yeah, let's, uh, let's do that. Let's bring our sunshine out to the moonshine. Okay, follow me. We can go sit by the roses. Oh, that sounds great, Miss Mousy. Thank you. Oh, and don't forget to um, remind your listeners that I'm just a two-dimensional, hand-drawn rodent studying herbalism, and they should always do their own research. Uh, yeah, you got it, Miss Mousy. Oh, wait, I almost forgot the flower oracle. Oh, yeah, the flower oracle. We can't forget the flower oracle. Okay, it's um, Kate Greenaway's Language of Flowers, and I'm just going to paw through... And find out our oracle. And it it is Queen's Rocket. You are the queen of coquettes, fashion. Well, I like that. Okay. We're we're the queen of coquettes, fashion, Mr. Bear. Let's go uh let's go ponder that under the moonlight. Sounds good to me, Miss Mousy. Are you or anyone you know a musician? Amateur, professional, experimental? Do you tell stories with music and song? Are you interested in being considered for a potential feature on Mr. Bear's Violet Hour? If you have answered yes to any of these questions, please send samples of your work, links to Bandcamp, SoundCloud, your website, digital demo tape files on Google Docs, whatever you have, to violethourmoon at gmail.com. Saves me, saves me. 
That was Anna Teixeira with Wild One. And that's the show, folks. Thanks so much for spending a little time with me in the Violet Hour uh, for the end of summer spectacular super blue moon. I hope you enjoyed the work of Exodus Octavia Brownlow as much as I enjoyed reading it. And you can get your uh, your own pause on your own copy of her book of essays. I'm afraid that I know too much about myself now to go back to who I knew before. And oh Lord, who will I be after I've known all that I can? Uh, so you can get um, get your own copy from ELJ Editions at elj-editions.com. And you can find out more about Exodus and her beautiful work. She has lots more gorgeous writing online and other books. Uh, so check out her website at exodusoctaviabrownlow.com. That's E-X-O-D-U-S-O-K-T-A-V-I-A-B-R-O-W-N-L-O-W.com. And don't forget, you can listen to more of Anna Teixeira's beautiful music at their Bandcamp, anateixeira.bandcamp.com. And before you go, I've got a parting gift for you uh, with an oracle from Norton Jester's The Phantom Tollbooth. So I'll paw through and point down, and your oracle is... But it may be important, insisted Milo. Not at all, she assured him. It's only me. It gets so lonely around here, with no sounds to distribute or collect, that I call myself seven or eight times a day, just to see how I am. On, I'll read that one more time for you. But it may be important, insisted Milo. Not at all, she assured him. It's only me. It gets so lonely around here with no sounds to distribute or collect, that I call myself seven or eight times a day just to see how I am. Well, that's your oracle. Interpret as you will. I hope if you're calling yourself to see how you are, that you're doing great, and that the super blue moon is bringing all beautiful things to light around you. And thanks again for joining me in the Violet Hour where we're making the lonely a little more bearable. I'll be back with you for the new moon. Until then, take care and be kind to each other. Theme song and show music by Sugar Whiskey. Mr. Bear and Miss Mousie believe in radical love and kindness, in mutual aid, and empowering ourselves and our communities. Together we can dismantle the white, racist, colonizing, misogynistic, capitalist, homophobic, transphobic, ableist patriarchy. This podcast was recorded on Potawatomi, Kickapoo, Miami, Sioux, and Peoria land. Text your zip code or city comma state to 907-312-5085 and find out whose land you're living on. Uh, You can also go to land.codeforanchorage.org. For more information, there's also a helpful map at native-land.ca. This is just the first step in developing a land acknowledgement. Let's learn our history and honor the land and indigenous peoples, past, present, and future.
This podcast was produced in collaboration with the Boston Free Radio Podcast Network, part of bostonfreeradio.com and Somerville Media Center, Somerville's longest-running public access media center that enables a vibrant and diverse community to express its creativity, explain its ideas, share its cultures, and foster the individual right to freedom of speech. Learn more about Somerville Media Center at somervillemedia.org or check out some of the other amazing Boston Free Radio podcasts and radio shows at bostonfreeradio.com. Thanks for listening.